Well, as much as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his supporters would like all stories around SNC-Lavalin about Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott to go away, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And uh, we are going to talk about it a bit more on this program. And we are joined now by Mike Smith, province columnist, also a uh, host on this station. Mike, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. Anytime, Jill. You've uh, written about this. You talked with Jody Wilson-Raybould. What would you guys talk about? We talked, I sat down with her yesterday, and um, listeners can certainly check it out in the province newspaper today. It's front, our front page coverage. Uh, we talked about how she was ejected from the Liberal caucus this week by the Prime Minister. She had some interesting description of what it was like sit, sitting in the Prime Minister's office and being told that she's out of the caucus and she's not allowed to run again for the Liberals in the riding of Vancouver-Granville. And Interestingly to me, we talked about kind of the aftermath of it, and she said that one of the first things that happened was she was immediately approached by other political parties to see if she'd be interested in joining them. So she said that Green Party leader Elizabeth May uh, reached out to her. She said in in the hallways of the House of Commons, uh, other MPs from other parties, the NDP, were coming up to her and saying, hey, come on over to our side, you know. Um, and she said she's not ruling anything out. She said right now she's she's talking to her constituents, members of her family, her friends and supporters, and deciding what she's going to do. She sounded to me like she wants to run again in the fall. And I guess the question is, will she run as an independent? Or does she join another political party, perhaps the Green Party or the NDP, she, she made it pretty clear she's, she doesn't have any interest in joining the Conservative Party, which uh, maybe is maybe not surprising to a lot of people. But that, that was the only thing that she kind of pretty much ruled out. Everything else seems to be on the table. And to me, that's, that's very interesting to see where this is going to go uh, in the fall here. Because if she runs in that riding, I think she's got a heck of a chance to, to win it. Because I, I think she's got, she won it handily last time, and I think she's got a lot of public support still. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, do you think, though, I almost think it would um, hurt her to go to another party, that she would have a better chance, even though as independents, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a different scenario, but uh, I almost yeah. feel like she'd have a better chance as an independent. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question for her to, to ponder. And uh, I talked to her father the other day, Bill Wilson, the well-known uh, Indigenous leader in B.C., and he said the same thing. He said his his advice to her would be to run as an independent, and he thinks that she would she would win as an independent, and uh, maybe he's right. Now, here's an interesting thing to think about, though. With, with the polls, the way they're stacking up right now, before this scandal broke, Justin Trudeau was doing pretty well in the polls, but since then, the conservatives have taken a lead in the polls. Trudeau, though, still has... A certain amount of appeal to a lot of Canadians. I think he's a, he could potentially be a strong campaigner. Do you possibly end up with a minority government result here? I, th- I think that's a significant possibility given the way the polls are breaking right now. And if that happens, you could have a situation where the NDP hold the balance of power. And imagine if Jody Wilson or Jody Wilson-Raybould joined the NDP, is elected as an NDP MP and then suddenly the NDP hold the balance of power in minority parliament. <laughs> and the NDP and uh, Jagmeet Singh and, and, and Wilson-Raybould have kind of suddenly hold all the cards here effectively. So, you know what? 
it's it's a really interesting situation, and I think we're in for a little bit of a barn burner of an election here in the fall. That's for sure. We're getting ahead of ourselves now, but this this thing is uh, this story has gone on for a long time, and and you're right, the liberals just want it to go away. But I think for a, a lot of uh, people in that riding, certainly they're they're watching her very closely, and I think she's got a lot of support. Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, could yeah. she could she go to? I mean, I, I'm not sure. Her she still identifies as uh, she's an ind- she's independent now, but the, still the party she closely identifies with is still the Liberal Party yeah. on a federal level. I'm not sure she, she would completely mesh in an NDP uh, camp. That's uh, probably she's thinking that over. Uh, very, very carefully. And that's what she told me as well. She said she's not ruling anything out. She's keeping options open. But for now, she considers herself to be an independent liberal is the way that she described herself to me. So she said she still supports the party, the liberal party in principle, um, supports its policy objectives generally. Uh, You're right. I mean, she may, she may decide that going to another party is not the best move for her. That, that's a very distinct possibility, and she runs as an independent. We'll see. But it, sur- it sure sounds like she wants to run again for somebody, either independent or for somebody else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, you guys also talked uh, about uh, how things unfolded, uh, the recording of the conversation and such, uh, and and these the, this idea of these leaks that are coming, which clearly uh, whoever is leaking this information is trying to undermine her credibility. Uh, what did she have to say yeah. about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the government insiders, and this has been widely reported by many different media sources, so the government has got a kind of a full-court press with the with the media to give anonymous leaks to the press saying that at the height of this, that Wilson-Raybould laid down a series of conditions to Justin Trudeau for diffusing this whole crisis and for her to remain in the caucus. And according to these government insiders, the conditions included that Trudeau would have to issue a public apology, that certain key people in Trudeau's office would be fired, notably uh, Gerald Butts, his principal secretary, and Michael Wernick, the former uh, clerk of the Privy Council, the guy she she recorded on a tape recording, and um, and that most controversially, I think that she would want to guarantee that the new Attorney General, David Lametti, would not give this deferred prosecution agreement to SNC Lavalin. Now I asked her about that yesterday. She said she would, doesn't want to comment about anonymous sources. However, she did quite uh, fiercely deny one part of it and it was that last one where she where she allegedly wanted to tie the hands of the new attorney general she she said there's no way that she did that that she didn't appreciate it when she was getting pressured as the attorney general and she wouldn't do it to another attorney general so she denied that part of it but um she did say that she felt that Trudeau should apologize and so some of the stuff some of the parts of it ring true and others don't so I, I, the public can decide for themselves, I guess, what's true and what's not here. But she certainly said that she didn't. She denied, denied parts of it and doesn't comment on other parts of it. Right, and that almost yeah. seemed to me uh, when, when I was reading about that as well. It, it almost seemed like perhaps it had been misconstrued, and that maybe what she meant was that she didn't want another attorney general to be pressured like she was. So she didn't want the inappropriate well, behavior for another attorney general. Not not 
saying you must hold up what the previous AG did, being her, but th- this type of behavior is inappropriate. Well, I think there were clearly, obviously, some discussions and negotiations that went on uh, as as they attempted to try and get beyond this. And I think Trudeau did want to get to a point where she remained in the caucus and they somehow were able to heal this over. But I also spoke to a couple of uh, BCMPs uh, yesterday. I spoke to Gordy Hogue, um, who's the chair of the uh, Liberal Caucus in British Columbia among Liberal MPs. And um, Jonathan Wilkinson from uh, North Vancouver is the federal fisheries minister. And they both said that they were part of the discussions with her and that they there was a several weeks process where they tried to heal things over. And they, they both said that they, they just couldn't get there. And Wilkinson in particular, the North Vancouver MP, said, insisted that she made demands that were unacceptable uh, and unreasonable, as, as he called it. He, he wouldn't go into details. He said those are private conversations. She turns around and says that basically these are anonymous attacks that are just unfair and potentially backfires on the government. Hmm. Yeah. It's it's interesting just watching this all unfold. And like you said, they want it to go away. But can you imagine a case where perhaps or, or a way that Trudeau could have handled this worse? It just seems I like everything I, he's done is is just angered people. I think from the very start, Trudeau and, and his team have kind of mismanaged the whole the whole scandal, including the kind of the, the, the shifting talking points and different stories that came out for the explanations of what happened here and the denials and that kind of thing. So I think it has been made worse over time. And you're right, the Liberals just want it to go away. Jonathan Wilkinson, the North Van MP there that I interviewed, he he told me that, uh, in his opinion, the public is sick of the story and they don't want to talk about it anymore and they want the government, they want to start talking about the economy. So I think that'll be a, a frequent talking point you'll hear from the Liberals saying like, oh, this is just a big media creation. People are sick of this. Let's get on with it. Um, that, that may be correct in some people's minds. I mean, some, maybe some people are sick and tired of the whole thing. On the other hand, she's an extremely high-profile MP uh, in British Columbia now, and in BC in particular, I think it's going to be an issue in the election going forward. And certainly, I think she's got an excellent chance to retain that seat, no matter who she runs for, whether it's an independent or for somebody else. Exactly. Uh, as yeah. much as they would like it, I don't think it's uh, going away completely right. anytime soon. Yeah. Mike, thank you so much. Appreciate uh, you yep. coming on today. You bet, Jill, anytime. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the CN Tower, Niagara Falls, both will be lit in green today for Canada's first green shirt day, a day to promote organ donation. This on the first anniversary of the death of Humboldt Broncos player Logan Boulay, one of the 16 people killed in that crash. Uh, Shortly before he died in the Saskatchewan hockey team bus crash, he signed up to be a donor and six people benefited from his organs. His selfless act is now being credited with changing the landscape when it comes to organ donation in this country and uh, creating the so-called Logan Boulay effect. Well, we are joined now to talk more about uh, Green Shirt Day and the effect that can have uh, by somebody who knows firsthand what it's like to be an organ recipient. And Stuart Zuckerman joins me on the line to talk a bit more about that. Thank you so much for being here. I'm pleased to be here. Thanks. Uh, we generally talk about law. People will know you as, as a lawyer with Zuckerman Law. Uh, but you also have a very uh, personal story when it comes to kidney transplant. Uh, maybe share with us what you can about how your life has been impacted by this. Sure. Uh, I was uh, a, a, a sick child uh, in kindergarten. We discovered that my family discovered that I had 
uh, kidney problems, and I almost died back when I was a, a five-year-old. Um, they managed to, through some surgery, surgical intervention, uh, uh, deal with the situation at that time. But I was born with one kidney, and that kidney did not function normally. So I always knew one day I would need a transplant. Uh, then in 1991, when I was about 21 or 22 years old, um, my kidney, that kidney that I had failed, and I went on dialysis. I was on dialysis for about a year, with something called peritoneal dialysis, for about a year. And, uh, and then I got a transplant um, at age uh, 22 or 23, and uh, or 24. That transplant lasted uh, healthily for 25 years. And then about two and a half years ago, uh, started to uh, fail again and came to a complete cease of function, that kidney, uh, about two and a half years ago. So I've been on hemodialysis for the last two and a half years, um, getting that uh, four times a week, get, getting two needles stuck in my something called a fistula, which is a surgical uh, creation that the doctors create in your arm to connect an artery to a vein to enable uh, arterial access to your to your blood. And I, I sit connected to a machine four times a week, hemodialysis machine that sucks out all my blood. Your body has five liters of blood. This machine, over the course of four, four hours, processes something like 100 liters of blood, so your blood is cleaned 20 times. Um, and while it's being cleaned, the water is removed from it because your kidneys are no longer functioning. So you're not producing urine at all when you, whenever you consume liquid. It's just staying in your body. So doctors have described the situation to me as it's a, a, a patient who has kidney failure is similar to a, a bathtub with a plug in it that won't come out. So every time you take a drink of water or any, any liquid, you're just adding fluid to the body, but the body has no way of having that fluid exit other than through this dialysis process, which removes liters and liters of water every time you, you, uh, you have one of these uh, treatments so that the artificial kidney does the work for you outside of your body. I'm on the active waiting list in British Columbia, along with about, uh, I think there's 670 people on the active waiting list for kidney transplants. Um, I know that uh, last year they transplanted something close to 500 people. Uh, it was a record year, I believe, so it is getting better. But it's it's vital that people inform their family members of their wishes to donate their organ um, or organs. Uh, and and it takes a, it's a two-minute process for any person to go online and register at the BC Transplant. All you need is your personal health number. Uh, and two minutes online to answer some questions and you become an organ donor. And then the, then the key is still in British Columbia, you have to talk to your family because it's it's your next of kin that on your death that would have to give consent to the doctors uh, for a transplant, regardless of whether you've registered uh, for a donation. Um, so um, it's important that that piece about discussing it with your, with your family is, is an important piece. And obviously it can make... A, a tremendous impact difference in the life of the person who receives the organ. When I got my kidney, uh, my understanding was I was one of eight people who got a kidney from a 16-year-old who had been struck by a drunk driver. His mother happened to be a nurse, and she donated his organs, and, and he saved eight people uh, back in the, when I had my transplant in 91. So, um, you know, every time somebody donates, it's uh, it's giving a gift of life to uh, 
to several other people. Uh, if they choose to, to, to donate, you can when you're registering to donate to decide what what it is you you want to donate or if you want to restrict anything that you don't want to donate but um, any gift of uh, an organ or tissue is uh, something that's going to have a tremendous impact on the life of the recipient so I'm I encourage everyone all the time to uh, to register uh, to be a donor. Uh, and have they given you any idea? And I guess it's, it's difficult to say how long or, or what the wait might be for you. How much longer you'll be on the list? So th- that depends on your blood type. So I'm I'm blood type O positive. About twenty percent of Canadians are blood type O positive. The waiting list when I began dialysis, I was told the waiting list was five to six years for my blood type. But over the past two years, that has shortened. Uh, I'm told because of the fentanyl crisis and the the number of young people dying from often first-time use of fentanyl um, and uh, causing death. And, and with uh, so many young people dying from that uh, drug overdose, uh, their families have been donating. And that has cut the wait time in half. So I've now been told that I should expect to have a transplant sometime this year because I am, I have been on dialysis for two and a half years and the, the wait is now two to three years for an O-positive uh, kidney in British Columbia. And, and you raise a, an interesting point too about the fact that this is your second transplant because I think there might be an idea out there that once somebody gets a transplant, that's it, you're going to take the anti-rejection drugs and you're good to, for the rest of your life, but that's not always the case. So I was told that uh, when I had my transplant that it's good for about uh, 15 years on average. That's what they told me in 1991. My kidney lasted 25 years, so um, I had a good run with my kidney. I have heard of people who have had kidneys that have lasted over 40 years so from a transplant, but uh, the average apparently is now closer to 20 years for for most transplants. And the problem, of course, is once you've had one transplant, what happens is you're taking you're taking the kidney of a, of another person. So it's a foreign body. It contains antibodies. Um, so your body develops antibodies to the new kidney. And then it's a bit more complicated when you go for your second transplant because now you have not only your antibodies in you, it contained in your body, but you also have the antibodies of the person whose kidney you received. So it makes your it makes it harder for you to qualify um, to match the kidney. So in my situation, only three out of 10 O positive kidneys will be compatible with, uh, with my body because of the antibodies that I have in my body. So that affects the waiting list as well. The more resistant your body is um, to transplantation after receiving your first transplant, you become more resistant and, and then it's more difficult to, uh, to match the second time around. And Stuart, just one more question, because this has been in the news as well, in that we have a very high percentage of people who support organ donation in this province. It doesn't match with people who are registered, though. The registered number goes down to something around 20%. Would you like to see BC go down the same path as as Nova Scotia is looking at and New Brunswick is looking at as far as uh, having people opt out? So everyone's in unless they opt out? That makes way more sense to me. I'm always very excited to see the news in Nova Scotia. And I hope that similar legislation can be passed in British Columbia. I'd encourage your your listeners, if they support organ donation, to contact their MLAs and to to ask their MLAs to uh, get a bill introduced to uh, our BC legislature to um, to uh, support 
of the idea of uh, an opt-out type of program where everybody's automatically presumed consent is presumed unless the person registers to opt out of organ transport or it also that legislation also still allows the family on death even if the person didn't opt out the family the next of kin on death can still refuse the transplant if they choose to do it and of course it's important to understand that the process in in all of in all of the canadian provinces is that two independent doctors at the time of death of the of the donor two independent doctors who are unrelated to the transplant program have to both conclude that the person uh the deceased is in fact deceased or is brain dead they have to both confirm that the the the, the body is uh is uh, deceased and now able to give the the uh, organ donation before that can be approved so it's not as though you have doctors rubbing their hands waiting for organs or anybody organs are going to be taken from anybody who's not appropriate to to give an organ it's it's done um in that uh in that fashion i do want to give a quick shout out to the staff the nurses and the staff at the surrey memorial hospital who do an incredible job taking care of about 350 or more um dialysis patients it's a very uh time-consuming and uh requires a lot of care and tenderness uh, and attention and the nurses there do an excellent job of uh taking care of people who are really not enjoying the process of having to go through dialysis. And, and I would remind all of your listeners, all of British Columbians, that, you know, being somebody on an, on an organ waiting list, transplant waiting list, it's a huge impact on your life. It's, it's not just the intrusive medical procedures where there, there are a lot of them. And the longer you're on the list, the more medical problems arise, the more medical procedures and intrusions you have to have. But it's a, it's an incredible strain financially it's very hard for me to make a living while I'm, you know, on dialysis four times a week. It's uh, it's physically hard to uh, uh, to to deal with all of the uh, the impacts of uh, of uh, being on a waiting list and and having kidney failure, and I'm sure even worse with people with liver failure, lung failure, or heart failure. Um, so people are suffering, and uh, and British Columbians have the opportunity to assist their fellow citizens by uh, ensuring that they have discussions with their family about wishes to donate and ensuring that they get registered and and uh, and increasing the number of uh, transplants that uh, that take place each year. All right, uh, we'll leave it there. Stuart, thank you so much. I'm more than pleased to uh, give the information. Thanks. All right. It is not a topic people love to discuss, but it is an important one and it is being highlighted highlighted all this week. It is Make a Will Week in BC. And Akash Sablak, who is a Vancouver notary, joins us on the line to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Joe. So first off, what happens if you uh, pass away and you haven't made a will? What happens to all your stuff? Yeah, that's a question I get a lot. That, oh, I don't have anything. I don't have much. And I'll just let it, you know, whatever happens, happens. It's under the Act, under the Wills of State of Succession Act, and that dictates what happens to your assets if you do not have a will or some sort of documentation in place. Uh, but it sounds like we're often told that uh, it's, it can be a bit of a nightmare as far as red tape and for the family you believe leave behind if you haven't got things in order. Absolutely. Now, you know, I have this discussion with clients many times where, these people have worked very hard for, for what they have and, and they, they're raising a young family and they need to have things in place to protect not only their assets, but more importantly, their young children. 
And with the will, you you make it very clear of, of who's going to be looking after your children, who's going to be looking after your assets, and really what happens to um, all the assets and everything that you've worked very hard for. And so if somebody hasn't even started the process, though, and they've been putting it off because they think it's complicated or difficult, so what do you say to that? <laughs> yeah, and that, and that is usually a big issue. I have clients that have taken years to, to get started and some that... Uh, you know, I, I mentioned to them when they're when they're purchasing their home or they've come in for something else and say, hey, Lynn, do you have your will? And, and I always get that from one of the spouses, that little nod and saying, I told you so, we need to get this done. And getting started is one of the hardest things. And what we do recommend is sit down with your spouse and think of what you have, who you want to give it to, and more importantly, if you have young children, who's going to look after them. Very easy. You sit down with the BC notary. We discuss it. It can usually be done in, in, in two appointments where you sit down and you discuss what you have, what the process you want it to look like. And then, of course, the second appointment is to review the draft and then finalize the documentation. And it seems like there's a big uh, discrepancy on age, and which I guess makes sense. People, we don't want to think about dying at a young age. But uh, the survey, an Ipsos survey, showed that about 67% of people 55 and older will tend to have a will. It drops down, though, at 35 to 54, uh, and it keeps going down. But I, I guess it's important. It's not about age. It's about whether or not, like you mentioned, you have children, you own property, uh, you have pets, you have savings, uh, anything really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a situation where you are um, being responsible for what uh, you're trying to protect your, your assets and your family. And I think uh, a lot of younger people think, oh, I'm going to live forever. It's no problem at all. And, and the reality is, is that situations do arise. I had a close friend of mine pass away last summer, leaving three young children. And luckily, he had a will and it was quite straightforward of who looks after his children and what, what's going to happen to his assets. And, you know, we... we we would purchase a home or we have a car or we have a, a responsible um, life. And this is just one part of uh, of doing that. And I think if you have children at the age of 18, you own a home or, you know, there's um, uh, blended families. These are the these are the times that you definitely need to make a will. And is it guaranteed or are there ways to make sure that it won't be contested or that you can rest assured that that what you have put in the will is what's going to happen? And, and that's that's an issue, again, that comes up a lot where clients will say, you know, I'm putting it in there. It's not going to happen. How do I know that? Well, the reality is if you don't put it in, um, it's, it's going to happen as per the act. So especially if you have, say, a blended family where you have children from a previous marriage, if something was to happen to you and it goes to your child and your spouse has not adopted that child, well, that child's uh, next next of kin is their, is their mother or father, so your ex-wife or your ex-husband. And at least if you put it in the will, it's going to dictate what happens, the flow of it. And if you don't have a will, it's going to happen as per the act, maybe not the way that you want it to. And you're a notary. Is there a difference or can people, is it, because I think people might have the impression that you need to go through a lawyer to get this done, but notaries do this all the time, don't they? We do. I mean, I've been doing wills for over 21 years and and notaries are quite qualified to, to prepare wills here in B.C. And how long does the process take then from start to finish? Because uh, you know, we mentioned that off the top, people might just think it's just such a big task. You know, it, it's that initial conversation that you can sit down with a BC notary, have that initial conversation. And, you know, we welcome as many questions as possible because um, your situation, everybody else's situation, it's not a cookie cutter situation where you actually have to sit down and we discuss your unique situation of, you know, you have assets here, you have assets overseas, you have um, a car, you have some a heirloom. I had a client in last week who had this beautiful, beautiful doll from Germany that's about 45 years old, handmade, 
And she was very particular of which niche she wanted that to go to. So we sit down and we discuss those items and we, we draw a framework. And then the second appointment when they come in is we have a draft copy ready for them. They review it, reread it, and we only sign it when they're ready to sign it. All right. And, and what is the cost range to, to put a will together? You know, a basic will can start at about three or $400. And of course, um, you know, I, I can do a three-page will or I can do a 13-page will if you want to. So it really depends on, on what, your, uh, what your requirements are. All right. Well, it's very good advice and uh, good for people uh, to have this uh, top of mind and uh, to be thinking about it, especially as uh, we have uh, Make a Will Week happening. Uh, anything I've missed that you wanted to include? Well, no, I think the, the biggest uh, thing is, is, is have that discussion at home. And, uh, you know, I had a situation where clients were, um, had older children uh, in their 30s and they were, you know, having a difficult time as it's, you know, does, does Johnny get the, the, the painting? Does, does Susie get the sofa? What, what happens is, and what they did is they had the kids come over and did a, a post-it party. They took three different color post-it notes, gave it to each child, and the, the, the children walked around the house and put post-it notes on what they wanted. And the children said that, okay, you know, I want, I want this sofa, I want this painting. And they just made a fun night about it. And I think those are the type of discussions that people can have that, uh, you know, take the, the pressure off of making a will. All right. Uh, make, a, make it as fun as you can. Uh, Akash Sadlock, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. No, thank you so much, Jill. Well, my next guest is a former long-serving chief of staff to former Premier Gordon Campbell. He served as the B.C. Liberals' public campaign director uh, several years, 2001, 5, and 9. He's also been the principal author of four election platforms. And Martin Brown joins me on the line now. Martin, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, you've been writing uh, extensively about uh, the ongoing SNC-Lavalin case, and in particular looking at what Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott might do next. Uh, we've been getting glimpses. Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, chatted with Mercedes Stevenson. She talked with Mike Smith with The Province. Uh, he's written about that today. Uh, sounds like both are being courted by other parties, but are reluctant to go there right now. Yeah, and, and the column I have out now in the Georgia Strait, uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek, it, it, it suggests that she should start her own party. Uh, I, I actually point out that, that uh, it's not impossible. You know, if Maxine Bernier, you know, Mad Max, can uh, can create riding associations in all 338 ridings in, in three months, as he did last fall, uh, Jerry Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, if they got together uh, with some of the other independents, they, they'd instantly have credibility. And uh, I think that they could they could create uh, a party that would be at least viable in a number of seats. Uh, certainly in in Vancouver, I mean, this is the real thing. Uh, we've got you know 16 liberal seats in Metro Vancouver, and uh, and across the country they have a new cachet as leaders uh, that that is really rare in Canadian history. Really rare. Would you ever see, you know, two women uh, that are as powerful uh, and so nationally lauded as these two, um, which is why all the parties are courting them. And, and you know, I, I predict, I can't, I can't actually, uh, you know, imagine that either of them would go to the Conservatives. That's not going to happen. And I think Jody Wilson-Raybould has made that clear. Uh, but the real question is, you know, uh, if they run for the Greens or they run for the NDP, uh, who's the real leader? Because that's really what I point out in the columns. I think that most Canadians are looking and saying, geez, we'd like to vote for Jody Wilson-Raybould as a potential leader. 
if only to create a new dynamic in Canadian politics. Uh, and if she runs as an independent, uh, she'll get elected, I think, in her own seat. But uh, and you know, uh, you know, that's that's great. But she won't be very influential, I think, in, in Ottawa. Uh, and if she runs for the NDP, uh, you know, she, I think, she'll get elected. Uh, she runs for the Greens, she'll get elected. Uh, Elizabeth May would be just, you know, drooling, I think, to get uh, her to run for for uh, the Green Party. Uh, and then the Green Party, you know, has going to be newly viable, I think, across Canada. If, if they form the government and PEI, as they look like they're going to do, and, and you've got Andrew Weaver and the Greens in B.C. giving massive credibility to the party, um, that could be something. But, uh, but a problem with the NDP, I think, is which would be the net, most natural fit for, for Jody Wilson-Raybould, you'd think, is uh, the NDP... Um, you know, has Jagmeet Singh as the leader, and it looks like he's going to get, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think lose badly in Quebec, which is the the real key to uh, to Jack Layton's victory. Right now, but for Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, here in BC, uh, she still identifies. Uh, I think she calls herself an independent liberal, so it's still the Liberal Party that she most uh, is aligned with. It, would it be a scenario where I agree with you completely? I think if she runs in as, in as an independent in Vancouver Granville, she will be elected. Does it then become a scenario of she's uh, a leader in waiting? Well, I think the challenge with the uh, the Liberal Party is is it's so divided now. You know, as as Trudeau himself said, a civil war is how he phrased it. You know, uh, it would be very tough to see her elected in the Liberal Party. Uh, I think what needs to happen uh, in the longer term, actually, is the Liberals, the Greens, the NDP. There needs to be some sort of new realignment. I think in the federal left for progressives, so that they all get on the same page. Uh, and and I think that's the real opportunity. Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, if she had uh, her, uh, a party label that was independent, she you know like like uh, we've seen other times, you know you know uh, with the with the Alliance Party or whatever, you know eventually these parties come together. Um, but what you need right now is relevance. In the upcoming October campaign, that's what you really need. And uh, and I think if she said, look, uh, you know, I'm not in this to, to cross the floor, as it were, because, you know, that's like abandoning her uh, her principles in some ways and, and different policies. Right. She's not in it to do that. She's in it for liberal values, liberal principles and not as an independent. Uh, and I and I think, you know, what. The Canadians, young people, millennials particularly, are yearning for is a new alternative to break down this stale uh, model that we have federally. That might be the Green Party, but, you know, I think the, the problem with the Green Party is the label right now just, you know, isolates it a little bit too much as though it's just an environmental party. It's not that. But, uh, but you know, and, and I think Jody Wilson-Raybould, if she ran again as a liberal, uh, you know, after winning as an independent, I don't, I don't think she'd win the leadership. There's just too many liberals that are upset with her. But there's a whole lot of people that are liberals, liberal-minded, small-L liberal people that are voters that would love to see her uh, run and lead a party. Oh, definitely. And I guess one of the things that would stick out for me, too, is the pipeline is a big issue in B.C. So if she was to, say, even entertain the idea of going over to the NDP, how does she reconcile going from a party that purchased a pipeline to a party that opposes it? Well, 
you know, I guess the challenge uh, when you're in cabinet, and that's another problem, you know, when you're in cabinet, as Dean Philbrook pointed out, you're bound by cabinet solidarity. You can't take a different position. So you have to support the government position. For all we know, Joey Wilson-Raybould and Dean Philbrook both opposed that purchase of the, you know, of the pipeline. Both of them might oppose the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, and my guess is, as a true liberal, she's, she's uh, probably ardently supported of real climate action, which we're not seeing from the federal government. Certainly the, uh, the reconciliation file, uh, you know, which has been woefully handled by the Trudeau government. And I think we've seen shades of that, her falling out with Carolyn Bennett and, you know, what, what the approach should be for reconciliation. It, it's no accident. Bob Chamberlain, you know, who is the vice president of the BC uh, Union of Indian Chiefs, he's running for the NDP in the by-election coming up in Nanaimo Ladysmith, you know, and uh, so they've alienated uh, so many sections of their vote uh, that were small L liberal. And I think that's the thing. Jody Wilson-Raybould is not bound by cabinet comp- uh, uh, solidarity anymore. She can speak out against Trans Mountain now, uh, as she probably should. Uh, one other question, and I don't know if we, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I'm curious your take. When this all started and the first story, uh, the Bob Fife story in the Globe and Mail broke uh, that uh, alleged this interference in the SNC-Lavalin case, what would your advice to Justin Trudeau have been? Well, I wrote a, an article on it at the time. I mean, I think, you know, it was so self-evident. As both Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott said, if he'd only come out and apologized, if he'd only acknowledged that what he and his minions did was wrong, possibly illegal. I, I get that she doesn't think it's illegal. But to be fair, Jody Wilson-Raybould doesn't know what went on in the back rooms, what information might have been illegally shared even, you know, or, or used. Uh, but, you know, if Trudeau had come out and said, I get it, I, you know, used uh, inappropriate pressure, shouldn't have done it, I apologize, that would have been the end of it. Uh, And both of them would have still been in his government, and I think Canadians would have been looking at it and saying, you didn't really mean to interfere with justice. What what instead he's done is he's doubled down. And even now he's speculating, you know, and his attorney general speculating it's not over till it's over, that they might give SNC-Lavalin a deal. This company that, uh, that, you know, is facing criminal charges for bribery, fraud, has got a incredibly checkered record that uh, that you're like, this is what you booted out? Those two strong women cabinet ministers for was for this company? For why? You know, for votes in Quebec? You know, this company that gave over $100,000 in illegal donations to the Liberal Party? You know, I, I don't get it. And and that's what I think people are looking at. You, you've violated the rule of law the tenet of prosecutorial independence, and you've lost two of your strongest cabinet ministers, all for a company that looks like it's about gaining votes for the Liberals in Quebec. That's what is so wrong with this. If he just apologized, he could have saved himself and the party a lot of grief. All right. Uh, Martin, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you again so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Well, if you've uh, been listening to the program for any amount of time, you know that at this time every year, we uh, chat with the authors who have been nominated for BC Book Awards. And the last couple of years, we've taken on the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize category, and we've been talking with the people who've written the books that are nominated in that category. We decided to mix things up a little bit this year and head on over to the non-fiction category. So for the next few weeks, we are going to be talking to some amazing 
amazing authors who have written memoirs, who have written political books, and all of them, again, nominated in the nonfiction category. Well, today we are being joined by an author by the name of Ian Hampton, born in London, England. He is a cellist, educator, administrator. After a stints with the London Symphony Orchestra and the Edinburgh String Quartet, he moved to Canada. He became the principal cellist of the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, also a founding member of the Purcell String Quartet and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields as well as, well, the list goes on and on and on. But I'm very pleased to have Ian Hampton on the line with us this morning and to talk a bit more about this book. Ian, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Uh, the book is, at, and if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is it Jan in 35 pieces? Jan. Yes, well, of course, my name is Ian, but I didn't want to, I wanted it to be in the third person, so it's a soft J, so it's Jan. Okay, and, and that's, uh, are you known as, you're known as Jan to your colleagues? No, well, yes, in, in the string quartet, yes. Okay. I was known as Jan. <laughs> All right, we've got that out of the way. So this is a, a memoir, uh, it goes deep into a life in classical music. How did you start putting together all of these amazing things you've done when it comes to music and your life and putting it into a memoir? Well, I, I started out by wanting to write mus- uh, about music. Uh, inevitably, of course, the one's, one's personal life comes into it because uh, there are many, many anecdotes I've used with each particular piece. But each chapter is sort of headed as a piece of music and my anecdotes go along with that, my experience with that music. Um, I, I was interested um, in trying to write about music, which is very abstract. It's very difficult to describe in words what music does. <laughs> and um, I, uh, it was a particular problem that was interesting because we used to play school concerts as a string quartet. And, you know, you walk into a classroom where, you've, where kids who are very often, you know, in their, before their teens, pre-teens, um, they presume that music is something that they hear in airports, in elevators, in shopping malls, <laughs> and uh, not really to sit down and listen. And they don't have very much idea of history, so they don't know whether Mozart or Beethoven came before the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that, that's what's the original problem which interested me. And if, I felt that uh, by, by writing anecdotes and about the way how musicians approach music and rehearse it and perform it uh, might illuminate the music itself. Because it is such a personal thing, isn't it? Well, yes. Um, I I think I I wanted to explain the business of music and music making sort of to the layman and in as humorous a way as I could. I I wanted it to be a bit like the James Herriot vet books. <laughs> and how challenging is that, though? Because when people hear about music, when and people, if you've been to the symphony, it's a very uh, formal event for the most part, uh, and uh, a lot, uh, you know, it's a very uh, structured event. We don't often equate, say, a symphony with humor. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, Though there are symphonies which are very humorous, like Haydn's Surprise Symphony or Shostakovich's Ninth Symphony, which uh, that's humorous because Haydn was 
um, Shostakovich was taking the mickey out of Stalin. Uh, <laughs> Stalin thought he was going to write a Ninth Symphony like Beethoven, and instead he wrote a very trivial one. Um, but uh, a lot of humor happens on stage and in rehearsal amongst musicians. And, uh, well, music is only formal in as much as you've got to have silence to be able to hear what's going on. And so it's put in a formal setting. So you go into a theater and uh, they lower the lights and the conductor comes out and the concertmaster tunes the orchestra and all of that so that it's, you're, you're given a sort of preparatory <laughs> lesson in listening before the music ever begins. Yeah, indeed. Uh, the, the book itself, again, the title, Jan in 35 Pieces. So that itself, it, the book, is it fair to say that it's, it's somewhat structured as if it's a concert itself? Well, sort of, yes, yes. And, and was that a decision you made then before you sat down and before you wrote the book, or did that kind of happen as you were putting it together? No, it was a, it was a decision before I ever began. I, I wrote out a list of pieces which um, I, I love and I have experience playing and, and have anecdotes about. <laughs> so, uh, yes, so the pieces came first. And the writing itself, how did, did the writing come naturally or was it challenging to, to move from being a, more a performer and teacher and, and musical to going to, to the written word? No, um, uh, I, I found it very easy to write. I, I mean, I marshaled some ideas before I sat down. I wrote it cursive, <laughs> then it had to get typed up. But the really hard part came later when one begins editing it. And I have a wonderful editor, Barbara Nichol, who herself is a poet and a novelist. And, um, and she guided me to some extent um, in, in the formation of the book. But uh, her suggestion first was, well, let's fill out these scenes a little bit, you know, put a little bit of conversation in. So, in fact my narrative grew. But then when eventually we uh, found the publisher, Porcupine's Quill, um, the publisher said, well, you've got 550 pages, but we can only accommodate 300 pages with our particular printing and book binding. Mm. <laughs> so then we had the very painful process of lopping an awful lot of words out of it. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a lot to cut. Well, yes, it, sound, it sounds like a lot, but uh, they, they talk about pages, but in fact, you cut words, and so you had to get rid of several thousand words. But uh, it wasn't quite as onerous as, as I first thought, because by the time you've put it in print and the kind of type you use, um, the pages can accommodate a great deal more than my original type script. <laughs> and so you said, so you wrote the original, we're talking more than 500 pages and you wrote it in cursive? Yeah. That's, that's, I don't know a lot of authors that, that still do that. Why, why did you choose to write in cursive rather than typing from the get-go? Oh, because I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm not, I'm not very comfortable typing. Uh, and um, I only have an iPad. I don't actually have a computer. That's, uh, that's, that's, um, oh, the book itself, I mean, it just has so many great stories in it. Um, what, what are your thoughts now that it's, it's out, it's, it's just shy of 300 pages? Do you feel like you've told the story that you wanted to tell? 
Yes, yes. I think I think the editing process was very rigorous, and uh, I, I no, I don't regret all that's been left on the floor. <laughs> um, I think that's fine. I think um, I think the book is okay, and uh, yes, and I've said more or less as much as is useful to say. I think. And, and who do you think? Do you, do you think that you need to have a background in music or a love of music to appreciate the book, or does it go? Does it span beyond that? I'm hoping. Uh, I'm hoping that um, anybody who is interested in music will enjoy this book. I mean, I think I, I, I tried to write it for the layman, and though an awful lot of people perhaps wouldn't turn to classical music, the thing is. Um, we all hear quite a great, quite a lot of classical music, whether we like it or not. I mean, nobody, nobody will get through this life without hearing uh, Mendelssohn's Wedding March, for instance. <laughs> that is true. Um, the book also has sketches. It has some drawings in it. Did, did those come? Was that a suggestion by the editor, or did you always know that you wanted it to have uh, some drawings as well? Um, I'm. I, I like to draw, <laughs> and um, and uh, no, I, originally I wasn't thinking about putting drawings in, but uh, the editor at Porcupine's Quill stumbled across my blog <laughs> and asked if I was the same person that was doing the pictures, and so um, some drawings got into the book, which I'm very happy about because um, I I like I like books which broken up a little bit by illustrations of one sort or another. Uh, I like drawing because, uh, you know, music at the end of the day, um, it's gone. Uh, you're only as good as the last note you played, as the musicians would say. And so drawing is something which um, is there permanently. So um, I... I don't believe myself to be a great artist or anything, but it's kind of satisfactory to have a, a drawing which you can put away and look at later. Whereas in music, unless you've recorded it, you can't. But, and, and it's interesting you say that too, because I always find too, on, on the occasions when I, I, I get to go to the symphony, it always strikes me the, when, depending on what piece of music it is, when you actually think of the time that the music was written and the fact that here we are sitting in Vancouver in say 2019 and there are people in front of us playing the music that from, from such a long time ago. And, and I mean, I, I guess in that sense, thinking that it does still stay alive. Oh, yes. Um, no, no. <laughs> Um, I think I think the music will always be there. I mean, the music that has survived posterity is wonderfully constructed and has particular things uh, of an emotional uh, set that uh, can apply to anybody. I often like to quote um, a love song which was written in the 12th century, and. Uh, it, the, the you know the song is about love which we all experience but of course in this in the 12th century um, the, the uh, lovesick swain was probably smitten by a girl who had bad teeth <laughs> rickets uh, roomy eyes you know but nevertheless she was the girl of his choice oh, but that you know but that comes down to us um, I think very strongly even though it's so old. 
The book, again, is called The Yan in 35 Pieces, a memoir in music. Uh, Ian Hampton, congratulations on your nomination for the book prize, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.